0: Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a conversation about Pixar's Soul with director Pete Docter and producer Dana Murray, moderated by Glenn Kaiser, senior director of the Dolby Institute. Soul introduces Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a band teacher who gets the chance of a lifetime to play at the best jazz club in town. But one small misstep takes him from the streets of New York City to the great before, a fantastical place where new souls get their personalities quirks, and interests before they go to Earth. Determined to return to his life, Joe teams up with 22, a precocious soul voiced by Tina Fey, and discovers the answers to some of life's most important questions. Disney and Pixar's Soul is now streaming on Disney+. This conversation is presented by the Dolby Institute. Now, let's go to the talk. I really want to express my gratitude to uh, our friends at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the New York Film Festival. You know, we created the Dolby Institute to give education and outreach and inspiration to the next generation of filmmakers and content creators. And and the the Artist Academy is a program that's really um, really near and dear uh, to uh, to our hearts. And and uh, I, I just couldn't be more thrilled to to be here. Now, normally, um, I would say uh, to Pete and to, um, and to Dana, normally, you know, your film would have screened, uh, at the New York film festival. We would be having this conversation at Dolby 88 in, in our Dolby vision, Dolby Atmos screening room, um, in Manhattan. Um, in, in front of a live audience. So, uh, you know, we're, but, you know, we have to do the best we can, uh, in the times that, that we have in front of us. So I'm thrilled to be here in, in having, having this conversation with, the uh, the director of soul, Pete doctor, uh, and the producer of the film, uh, Dana Murray, uh, Kent Powers was originally scheduled to uh, join us in conversation today, but uh, unfortunately had a last-minute schedule change and and, uh, and wasn't able to isn't able to join us today. But I have so many questions uh, for the two of you on this film, and I got to say, first of all, uh, I just um, uh, just want to f- fanboy out a little before we start this movie. <laughs> I don't know how you keep doing it at Pixar, just raising the bar on uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic filmmaking. But uh, you know, we at the Artist Academy, we have a lot of, of writer directors, a lot of filmmakers, and so I wanted to, to start our conversation really talking about the development process uh, on the film. Um, you know, I think when when you have a movie that's as uh, beautiful and thoughtful. Uh, as, as Soul is, you kind of have this notion that it emerges from the ether fully formed uh, in, its, in its current state. But uh, I, I understand that, the, that there was a pretty lengthy development process on Soul. And so, Pete, I wanted to ask you, what was the movie that you started to make and how did it eventually become what, we're, what we've seen?
1: Yeah, you do have that idea that, you know, Walt Disney's just sitting in bed and he goes, Dumbo, and then it's all there, you know, and it's not the way it works. It's absolutely the opposite of that. It's like, you start with one idea and then you add something and take something else away. And It's more like sculpting with clay or something, I guess. The first movie, the story of this was, well, it, it, it actually kind of started watching my kids. My son was going off to college and I was, you know, as a parent, like, oh, thinking back when he was little and then recognizing, wait a minute, I remember when he was born, he basically had a personality, right? And, like, trying to think, like, how is that possible? Where did that come from? There must be somewhere that's not on Earth that gives you the sense of who you are. And so started playing around with this idea of, you know, uh, what eventually mutated into uh, the great before. Um, And our first story was just two souls that lived up there. The whole film took place there. Um, They looked down on Earth and said, we don't want to go. This looks like a waste of time. The long and short of it was that through their friendship, they eventually decided to go. They figured that the only thing that would make life worth it is friendship, and they go to Earth and they become Lewis and Clark, the real life, uh, you know, team that uh, I gather were good friends. And you know, it had some cute, l ideas to it. But um, I think the thing that really uh, attracted everybody was this idea of like trying to figure out where we come from and and. We got to explore that for the next four years as the story grew and shifted and changed. And we have a whole process, which we can get into if you want, that basically forces us to show our work every three months um, to each other, which is a lot of times uncomfortable. But you get a lot of great notes from people. And I think it's an essential part of what we do anyway, is shaping the film.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that process and sort of like, how do you develop the you know, I, th- I think for a lot of creatives, it's hard to show your work, especially to such an early nascent stage because it's so, you know, it's so you kind of have to build up a thick skin.
1: Yeah, Dana, you want to talk at all about the process?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think the difference uh, it, that Pixar does is like we never have our script, like our full script, like ready to go until literally like months after the film is done. <laughs> and we ask someone to be like, um, it's just- We're not proud of that,
1: but it's what happens.
2: <laughs> it is what it is.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: and so, you know, our, our writing process really is like building these story reels. Um, so we're starting with the script. The script goes to the story artist. The story artist is drawing the scene. That goes to editorial. They're cutting it together with dialogue, which we call scratch, like our temp, you know, actors around the studio, actors. <laughs> um and kind of music and then we every three months we do this and we get it in front of um you know uh, as many people as we could fit in our theater which is like 240 people or something and um we get a lot of notes and we tear it all down and we start the whole entire process over and um on this film we did that so we had uh, we had time to do that seven times on Inside Out, I think we got to do 10 or 11. So wow. it felt very quick um, for animation. <laughs> it was it was fast.
1: <laughs> the weird thing is, I feel like for me anyway, that's where we find the films, right? In right. editorial. And uh, we are kind of essentially editing it before we shoot it. You know, we're having these sta- stand-in images that will uh, represent, oh, we need a shot that's four feet, seven frames, that's a close-up of Joe or whatever it is. So... Um, it's uh, and do you a do weird that before backwards way of working.
0: Do you do that before you do the voice recording sessions with the with the actors? So you had what? Uh, just a <clears throat> you have a stable of folks up at Pixar that you do scratch recordings with. Is that how you kind of flush that process? Yeah. We call
1: them the Pixar players, you know, a group of (laughs) anybody we can drag into there uh, who's, who's got any acting chops at all. Mm -hmm. And it's usually pretty clunky.
2: (laughs) Yeah. For, for this film, we did, we hired a local actor to do our scratch. So sometimes for your key main characters, you may bring in like more like a, yeah, someone with a little bit more experience. Um, So
0: that was helpful. So uh, I I have another couple of questions about the development process. But before we uh, continue, I do want to just invite everyone. We will have some time at the end for questions. So if you have a question, uh, please, as it comes to mind, just uh, pop it into the Q&A box, which is in the lower right-hand corner of your screen there. So my understanding from reading is that the, the, the plot line really kind of originally focused on the character of 22. Um, and I'm curious, sort of, where, how, at what point did did Joe Gardner come into the picture, um, and and how did you how did you kind of alight on jazz as a great way to explore some of these kind of themes? I was
1: just looking through some of the earlier drafts. I think the first version, Joe uh, had amnesia, and he knew he was not a new soul, but he could not place where he was from. You remember that, Dana? And so the whole film was like. An unraveling of this. Oh wait, I had a flash of something, and I, we tried the the idea that he was an actor because that seemed kind of fun and intriguing. But what we kept getting notes back from people saying, "Oh, he just wants to be famous." That's not not appealing. So we were looking for some kind of like pure thing, you know. And and we figured, well, I, jazz. I've always loved jazz, and you don't go into jazz to get rich and famous, you know. You do it <laughs> because you love it, and uh, um so that seemed intriguing. And then as we got into it, man, the, the the thematic elements of jazz are so, you know, like the idea of you're improvising, you know, you're given a tune, but what you do with it is so personal and it can, you know, obviously as a musician, you're trying to make it something beautiful and unique and, and uh, never before seen, which is just like life, you know? And so the more we learned about jazz, the more it made all these other decisions for us in terms of really connecting thematically with the film, even things like Joe, you know, jazz is black improvisational music. Joe, our main character should be black, should be African-American. A lot of those choices grew out of that simple idea of using jazz in the movie.
0: Right. I'm keeping an eye on our, on our chat box. And there's a question that just popped up that I think is interesting. Uh, the question is, were there one or two notes during the process that, that, that really struck you as vital to cracking the story? One or two notes. Hmm.
2: I this isn't so much a note, but um, I thought a pivotal moment was um, we watched the Herbie Hancock masterclass, mm-hmm. and um, Pete came in and like showed me this the story that he tells um, about playing with my Miles Davis, um, and it basically was the theme of our film. You you should tell it, Pete. You tell. It but, yeah, he than says. I
1: do. He says, you know, we were having a great tour. I think they were in Europe. And he said, this one concert was just amazing. They were totally killing it. And then Herbie says, then I played this chord, which was so wrong. (laughs) I worry that I'd ruined that whole night and reduced it to rubble. And he says, but then I look over and Miles Davis takes a breath and he plays some notes. And he made my chord right. Mm. And he's like, I could not figure out how he did that. Here's what happened. He, he didn't judge what he had played. He just took it as something new that happened and tried to do what any jazz musician should try to do, which is take anything that happens and turn it into something of value. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed so impactful as a story, as a metaphor for life. And, and it just, that kind of locked in that decision.
0: And as instruction for filmmaking too, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. yeah.
2: And the coolest part is like I was like, Well, let's just call Herbie and see if he'll he'll come talk to us. And he said yes. So then we got to work with Herbie Hancock and you know, he was one of our amazing consultants on the Yeah.
0: That's pretty cool it's amazing and so when you created the character of Joe and started to explore this this world of of, of jazz is that when you brought Kemp uh, 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 powers into the and he he came in originally as a as a screenplay writer right
2: mm-hmm Yeah, um, as soon as we decided that Joe was going to be an African American, um, uh, we knew we needed help. And so we immediately were like looking for um, an African American writer. So, in development, we have great people who read so many scripts and brought us, you know, ideas. But it, we actually read um Kemp's play One Night in Miami, which is now the great film that's out now.
0: Kemp has had a pretty amazing year, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: We were calling it Kemp Miss for because you know both his films were coming out on Christmas. Um
0: they both opened on Christmas Day, didn't they? Isn't that yes. it, really crazy? Yeah. Like yeah.
2: Yeah, he's been busy. Mm-hmm. um but yeah we read that play and just the we were in this period of really wanting to develop our characters and the character development he he has in that script was just amazing so um we he flew up he told i wish he was here because he he tells a pretty funny story about that day but Anyway, as soon as we met him, he he related so much to Joe's story. You know, he grew up in New York, um, same age, um, the artist's journey. Like he just had a lot of um, he just he felt like that writing this film was like meant for him. So it was a great fit.
1: Yeah, he said, you know, screenwriting is like his third career and he was trying to at a, an age where you know most people are like really you should move on now it's not working out you know get real and and Kemp <clears throat> kept going and it's very much like joe you know where he's like okay i got a couple more years before i can you know before the door slam shut yeah yeah
2: he said the first scene we had him write, which i didn't remember this but was the scene with um his mom um, mm. and in the taylor shop and he's like i pulled from many conversations like that that I've had with my mom so Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) well you certainly didn't have him start with the easy thing right yeah just just throw him (laughs) throw him into the deep end of the pool and see what happens. because
1: you know we were still trying to figure out like what is why is that scene there what is it that mom is pulling out of him because thematically of course we knew from an early standpoint that we're going to talk about okay using a fancy word essentialism the idea that hey we're each put on earth with an essence of who we are and some sort of purpose and Joe believes that um, and then we got to argue the opposite with 22 who's kind of a um, you know a nihilist who's like there's no point to anything it's all absurd and uh, in the course of the film he becomes you know like a, an existentialist which is yes there's meaning but you have to bring it yourself you have to come out into the world with some point of view and uh, so it was it was a fun chance to talk about a lot of Stuff that, you know, we learned about in high school philosophy class, um, but hopefully done in a, um, a fun way through
0: character. I would say that you uh, you accomplished that. It did not come off as a as a as a dry. Uh, OK, continuous. good. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Dana, one of the th- a question that I have for you is, you know, I, I feel like with each new film, Pixar kind of breaks some new technical ground. And one of the things that, that I, I love to talk about in our programs is how artists are using technology to tell story. So uh, what were uh, what were the big challenges on soul in terms of, of, you know, new technology that you had to develop or utilize in order to tell this particular story.
2: Definitely the Cracking the look for the soul world was incredibly difficult Um, it really we we, we made art and technical one department just because really we couldn't find that look in a painting they really needed each other to um, discover so. Um, I'd say the tools that were new were um, for our soul characters specifically Um the, you know, they're very ethereal and non-physical and all these words of like, okay, we need them to like show up on screen. So we need them to look like something, but we use these line work, which we hadn't done um, so that you can kind of read the, the forms as they're moving um, hands, especially.
0: But the line, work, most, line work like you would associate with 2D like cell drawing kind of animation?
2: Well, kind of, I mean, like on, on the model, um, because they would be kind of formless without it. But yeah, it was mostly, you mostly noticed it on the hands specifically. Um, but the the most difficult character, which we found out was the second most difficult Pixar character ever was um, actually the Terry and Jerry's, which we thought, Pete and I, when we saw it, when we, when we were developing it in art, we were like, oh my gosh, this is like a line. Like the animators are gonna love this. So fly through these shots. And it, was, it ended up being so hard, which, you know now makes sense once they explain it to you you're like oh but they also had a lot of fun doing it
0: well i would love to hear more about that because to, to your to your point you know looking at it uh y- it seems like these are kind of um you know almost like wire figures that should be pretty easy to animate what was what was the challenge with those with yeah. the uh with those is, oh look from our, our <laughs> art book um we have you know characters
1: that were drawn very simple flat things and then one of the designers, Deanna, uh, sculpted them in three dimension, but they're kind of like, um, well, like, uh, well, they're wire. So they're dimensional, but they're flat. So it was a qu- cool, like, mess with your mind kind of an idea that seemed like it would be get going to be
0: fun. And we thought uh, easy at the time. Little did we know. <laughs> Um, I'd love to, uh, uh, for you to talk a little bit more about the, the production design uh, on the film and specifically, you know, you, you set such a contrast between New York City uh, and, and the, the after and before life. What were sort of the, what was your inspiration in terms of the visual design uh, for the, the great before and the great beyond?
1: Jazz was a huge influence on the city. You know, you look at the great album covers of jazz records from the 60s and the 70s, it's got these angles and rhythm to them and color, and they're super poppy. And then we wanted the opposite of that, because when you think of souls, as Dana mentioned, it's ethereal, non-physical, you know, invisible. And so we were looking for ways to capture that. I guess because of the philosophy stuff I mentioned, we first looked at ancient Greece, and we were imagining people standing around in robes, philosophizing and learning the sort of, uh ideas that would help them through life but then we felt well we don't want to accidentally say everybody's greek you know Uh, it's supposed to be that the world is populated from the souls from this place so we wanted it to be non-specific culturally and so that caused us to really simplify the forms down to almost like mathematical much more pure kind of shapes um we also you know what's i i was remembering uh this weekend the first attempts at the great before were much more abstract. It was just like color and blobs and things like this. And then the characters in there and we found it was so disorienting to look at, to just imagine, okay, this whole movie's going to take place and I don't know where anything is, you know, it was, it was not the feeling we needed for the storytelling. We needed the characters to feel like this is comforting and and welcoming. And so um, we really needed to adjust our sense of design to work for the story, even to the point of almost hinting at nature. You know, there's these uh, grass kind of uh, things that Joe falls into and hills, rolling hills that are arranged in a mathematically kind of uh, pure way, but still evoking nature um, for that sense of of comfort.
0: Mm. Uh, I'd like to pivot for a second and talk about uh, about sound and music. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, very very dear to my heart. You worked with uh, the sound designer Ren Kleis uh, on the film, who is just a, 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 just an extraordinarily talented sound mm-hmm. designer. And and then of course um, the music. Uh, you, you know, you you um, it, and it, you kind of echo that same um, s- split between. The real world in New York and the before and afterlife in the music. So you've got you got the sort of a traditional score from not traditional, but a score from uh, from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which is basically uh, now I, I want to make sure I get this right. Is that were there rules? Was that sort of the music of the before and afterlife? And then in New York, um, the the jazz music was uh, was from John Batiste, right? So was that a rule that you made like it's it's one kind of music in this space and another kind of music in another space and how did you balance all that out
1: yeah our editor kevin nolting just started cutting it to temp you know with that sort of in mind and we said oh let's see how far we can take this could we do all of the earth world with jazz and it turned out to work pretty well very different than anything we'd done before it was originally jazz standards that we we were assuming uh, whoever we worked with would do their rendition of that. But then as we uh, met John and he showed him the film, he felt that uh, they needed to be more specific uh, to what was going on. So he wrote original jazz tunes. Um, and then Trent Atticus, I think actually, you know, it's funny. I was thinking we was Ren. Ren was probably the first choice we made in terms of outside Collaborators mm-hmm. and what yeah. an effect that had. You know, because he had worked with Trent Naticus, we a lot of the David, David Fincher films, right? Yeah. We had right. ended up reaching out through Wren to see if they would be interested. And so it it was um Ren's an incredible, incredible guy. He thinks way beyond just like sound effects. When you think of sound effects, you're like bonk, tsh- you know, those kind of sounds. He's really thinking much more um, emotionally and storytelling and, and how this works on a bigger level. Um, and he also, his work is so partnered with what Trent and Atticus brings. So instead of just music playing off of speakers, you know, left and right, you're in the middle of this. You know, the music is part of the world itself. And um, those were all kind of new elements that we'd never really dealt with before on a Pixar film. And I think really give that whole world a completely different
0: feel. Dana, do you have anything to add to that?
2: No, I just was thinking like we had Ren in there in editorial so early on, and as we were discovering the look of the Soul World, and I think he just he played a critical piece in that. You know, with, with what Pete was talking about the the nature, and you know, all of that is just. All, all of it is so part of like being in that world in the music too.
1: Yeah, even the yeah. the sort of nature stuff that was actually Ren's idea sonically, and so yeah. then as he brought that, we were like, wait, maybe this is maybe he's onto something here, and so we echoed it visually.
0: Mm-hmm. I you you just touched on something that I find it really interesting when you get into you get into a space of where you're working, you're not really you're kind of blurring the line between sound design and music and. It's you know there's tonal elements to the sound design and and it's it's a really rich kind of creative fertile uh, space. I know you know we've got a lot of of uh, filmmakers in, in our crowd today with the Artist Academy, and one of the questions that I I'm, I'm really curious uh, to get your to get your take on is I think for a lot of filmmakers it's really difficult for them to talk with their sound and their music departments because. Um, you know, it's sound and music are often very difficult to kind of discuss. So mm-hmm. for you, uh, Pete, um, you know, how do you approach working with uh, someone like Ren or or with Atticus and Trent in terms of like, how do you talk to them about what you want to accomplish with a given scene or with the overall uh, design of the sound and music of the film?
1: Well, I learned the hard way by trying to get too much into their business. Uh, uh, and so I, I thought I was being helpful early on, working with a composer and trying to articulate things like, "What if we, you know, tasset the tuba and double the strings so that we get more?" And that the composer got very upset because he he was thinking, oh, "Okay, Pete doesn't trust me. Pete doesn't like my ideas. He's trying to do this himself." So I I have slowly learned over the course of my career, like I feel the best way to communicate with people is in terms of emotion? What is it that we're trying to convey? What do we want the audience to feel? You know, when they sit and watch the scene, regardless of what's actually happening, it's a crowd scene or it's a, you know, a chase, whatever, what's the emotional quality that we're trying to evoke? And if I can communicate that through metaphor, through description, through any number of other things, then it unlocks the composer or the sound designer to bring their own ideas. So in the case of the great before we were, we were using words like we wanted to be comforting and welcoming and and enveloping. And, you know, and we talked a lot about, we showed him some of the design work that we had done. So anything to kind of help set the mood and then let them go because Mm -hmm. man, and, and through the whole film, you know, anytime people comment on our movies, it's like 1% me, 99%, all the other great people and ideas that have come out of communicating that way.
2: And to be honest, that's what Pete does with the actors, the animators, the story. You know what I mean? It's like, I think that that's how you direct in general. What was that?
1: That was my <laughs> heater that I hit with my foot. Sorry.
0: It's, it's cold up there in Northern
1: California. It is. I,
2: thought it was a, I thought it was an earthquake.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dana, you mentioned something that I wanted to follow up on, which is this idea of, <clears throat> excuse me, bringing in. Uh bring in the sound designer early uh for consultation and conversation. I think, you know, often, especially with live action films, sound design uh is kind of uh, you know left to the end of the process uh after, you know, after the movie's shot and largely edited. And then you bring the sound people in to sort of like just slather some sound effects in. What uh you know, what is gained for you creatively by having a sound artist come in <clears throat> earlier in the process and start to spitball and share ideas?
2: I mean, definitely the world building, like we were talking about with the soul world. But I think um, having Ren involved um, early on was key because of our partnership with Trent Navicus and just his working relationship with them and just how they've worked in the past. And because we had never worked this way, you know, like always um, you know, doing, getting the score at the very end, this was a very different process for us as well. So having, having Ren in there, he was kind of like our mediator, you know, talking to them and talking to us. And so he, he was incredibly helpful, um, from the beginning.
0: Yeah uh you mentioned directing the actors and so I, I I am curious to hear about what you know what was your casting process especially for some of the supporting characters I was so thrilled uh to hear uh I recognized Rachel House's voice right away we had given a Dolby Institute Fellowship to Taika Watiti for Hunt for the Wilder People oh, uh and she was one of my favorite characters in, in that film yeah that's yeah.
2: how we found her that's right <laughs> that movie
0: yeah, typically what
1: we do, and in some cases, you know, for your leads generally, we'll have some ideas. Um, but a lot of times we'll just, we have a couple of folks who are uh, casting at Pixar. We ask them to just give us little snips of dialogue with no picture and no names. So Joe number seven, we'll just listen to it. And by this time we, I think in all cases, we've had the designs done. So we have a picture of the design of the character we're trying to cast and we just listen to voices and some people really fit, you know, and then once you, some people are better at guessing who they are than others. I'm really lousy at it. I just want to kind of see, does that fit this? And I am not even really trying to think of who it is, but, you know, getting to work with Alicia Baraga, Richard Ayawada, Felicia Rashad, we just had this amazing, I think probably the most international cast of any Pixar film.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. And unfortunately that kind of meant we didn't get to meet, some of them, a lot of them, you know, like, uh, Rachel house, we, we only, we've only ever met her on zoom, which kind of sucks. Yeah. We're
2: going to New Zealand when this is all over.
0: That's right. (laughs) I think, I think a lot of us wish we were in New Zealand (laughs) right now. I know. I know. Well, uh, since you brought up working remotely, um, I am curious, uh, I understand you did have to finish this film during COVID, during quarantine. So, uh, how did you go about doing that? It's, it seems, you know, I, I've been to the Pixar campus before and it's such a hive of activity and everyone all in the same place and kind of ideas bouncing across. And obviously, you have a, a tremendous technical infrastructure there as well. So, how did you go about finishing this movie in quarantine?
2: Like this, um, <laughs> we it was it was mid March when we shut the doors at Pixar. Um, you know, leading up to two weeks, I mean, we all were seeing kind of what was happening in the news. So we started making plans with our systems department, and they were pretty incredible. So they just um, they they had everyone just be ready to take their machines home and within a couple days everyone was up and running you know there was wi-fi issues and people waiting to get you know upgrades and that kind of thing but it was incredible so we had seven and a half weeks of production left and we ended up finishing um, on time which there is no way I thought that would happen when we were leaving I was kind of like well, and we were also naive. We were like, see you in a few weeks, right? Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
2: Which seems so idiotic now, but um, looking back. But uh, yeah, it was really incredible. And then we held, once we finished, there was a small group of us that went into the studio to final the shots just in the theater, which, you know, we call digital dailies. So to just do those finals. And then we sat on the film for like a month and then we went up to Skywalker and did post um, very we were all in separate rooms and masked and you know arrows one way down the hallway, and, you know
0: right, yeah. but you were you were able to go out to the ranch and actually be there for the mixing sessions and to to hear things uh, we were there not, not way less,
2: the- yeah, but we kind of just went out for reviews rather than like hanging out and enjoying the ranch like we like to.
1: <laughs> and then a lot of the decisions we'd made for artistic reasons ended up really helping us, you know, Trent and Atticus were able to finish score because it's the two of them, not a right. whole orchestra. You know, we did, uh, well, and we were lucky to hire John Batiste who's like a multi musician. So he did the end credit song by himself at his house, yeah. um, just multi-tracking, you know, um, I think he he ended up bringing in somebody else to do drums, but, uh, you know, helps to work with talented
0: people. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. I'm curious about the ending of the film uh, and how you decided to end it where you did. Um, it's really a beautiful it's it's a beautiful ending that resolves but leaves a lot of questions open. Um, and I'm curious, you know, was that clear to you from the beginning or did did that go through a lot of iterations as well? How do you decide where to end your movies, basically? One of my favorite moments was
1: watching the audience preview. And you remember there's a movie, there's a moment in the middle of the movie where Joe says, No, I was born to be a musician. I know. And he jumps down. And the person sitting next to me, who was just a recruited audience member, said, "Mm -mm, Teacher. And I was like, Oh, this is great because we've set up this idea that either Joe has to be a teacher or a musician. But of course, the point is neither. Both all, you know, it's actually, again, goes back to Herbie Hancock and a number of other musicians who said, look, I'm a musician, but I'm also a father and a husband and a brother. And I'm all these things. And so the idea of ending the movie, not showing an answer to those seemed important. You know, we tried some actually where we showed him going back to teach and play at the same time. And it just wasn't wasn't fulfilling in the way I thought it would be. You know, I think we were referencing It's a Wonderful Life, you know, where where right, uh he runs sure. out, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls! And that's so fun. His energy is so joyous and, and effect- infectious. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it didn't play for us. And we thought better to just end on this sort of uh, idea of embracing the day, of breathing deeply, sun shining on his face. And it's the... Uh,
0: the it's up to the audience
1: where things
0: right. go from there. Well, and you set that up earlier with that wonderful story that Dorothea Williams tells to him after they play the show, right? The, 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 the fish, he, story. the fish story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, because I think you, you've, you've, you created a character in Joe who feels like if he's not going to be a musician, then he's failed. Mm-hmm. And that's the great, that's the great journey for him on this film is letting go of that,
1: right? Yeah, and I think it's a journey for a lot of us. I know for me, I, there's so many days when I define myself too too singly as like a, a Pixar guy or a filmmaker or whatever, you know, and, and you stop embracing the world and just paying attention to things that you walk right past all the time, you know? Um, and I guess that's one benefit of being uh, quarantined is like everybody's world shrunk, you know? And so now we're, we're starting to pay attention to things, sometimes not in an appreciative way, but, uh, to things that we might have breezed past on any other day. Um, so I feel like it was stuff that was bumping around in my head prior to COVID and everything, but it's, uh, often when you're robbed of something and you don't, have it anymore that sudden you realize, wait, that's important, you know, right. going out with friends to dinner. Oh my gosh, that's important. You know? <laughs> um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a real gift working on this film because whatever you do, you're going to be obsessing over it for the time in which you're working on it. This film got to talk about some pretty big ideas that I think um, have I'm slowly starting to become uh, uh, more intentional about certain things because of having worked on the movie.
0: Really? Can you give me an example? Well,
1: I mean, this is it's, most of it's going to sound like dopey self-help type stuff, but just <laughs> stopping and, in the morning and sitting for 10 minutes and not going right to work, but just stopping and hearing and smelling. Um, uh, and I don't know if that's what that's going to do, but it's fun for that 10 minute minutes. And usually I have to stop my brain from going, Oh wait, I have to email. Oh, no, stop, stop. Just, just be for a second and see what, where that goes.
0: Right. Right. Well, it, uh, it's I'm sure it's partially the film, and and for many of us, COVID has kind of forced us to slow down a little bit and to uh, to kind of take things in. So uh, before we open up to questions, uh, you know, uh, the, I, I do come from the Dolby Institute, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos and how how those technologies opened up some possibilities for you in storytelling on this particular film.
1: I was so. Um skeptical of Dolby vision on on because you know every couple of years something comes along and you're like, Well, that was a lot of work for nothing. <laughs> and when we saw Inside Out, I was blown away. That was a huge uh, I wish everybody could see our movies that way. And i'm not just saying that because you're on it's 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 like colors that i didn't know existed it brings this uh vibrancy and contrast and the darks are so dark you can't see whether the projector's on or not it was like uh yeah um so you know i think as we were making this film sequences like where joe is going towards the the great beyond that glowing white light we were through the whole time going ooh I can't wait to see this on Dolby vision because it's the darks just go away the edge of the frame just disappears and you're in this space and uh yeah it's uh it's a pretty f- fabulous uh technology
0: well i can't wait to see it uh in a, in one of our cinemas in in Dolby vision but i think you know you know even the way you use light, the autumn light in New York City, it's so beautiful and soft. And I I just the, the I I can't wait to see that in, in vision. And I, I'm I'm thinking about I think the first time that Joe sees Dorothea play in the club, and I think she's like three quarters turned. Mm-hmm. And there's just the way the light goes down the saxophone, the reflect mm-hmm. is just is so stunning. Um it's you really you really blur the line between live action and animation in some of these uh, some of these frames in a, in a really delightful way.
1: Well, we have these amazing tools and, and incredible artists like Ian McGibbon and the whole uh, lighting crew. <clears throat> you know, they're, they're able to take these natural elements and apply them in sometimes natural, but other times very stylized ways, um, uh, which is, you know, look, any choice you make in a film is going to have an effect on the audience. And so if you can harness that and use it in a way to further your aims. In the case of the saxophone and and like that, we were well aware that this place in real life, these jazz clubs are basements. They're kind of dumpy. They're like, you know, you bump your head as you go down there. Why would you aspire to work at a place that like that so we tried to use everything we could to romanticize it to bring it into to make you lean forward with joe and go like wow this is not only this place but this this person uh this musician is just incredibly good and so you know uh, again that comes from kind of speaking emotionally i think uh to to them about like what what it was we were after and and then ian and his whole team came up with a lot of those those specific ideas
0: that's great. And then the sound design just really re- reinforced the sense of wonder too. I'm thinking about the Hall of You, just the 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 sound design in that particular sequence is just beautiful. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Dana, do you have thoughts on that?
2: Oh, no. I I love that scene. Um I was just thinking the David Diggs rap. <laughs> <laughs> Cedric's rap group. I don't think, I don't know if most people know that, but he wrote he wrote and performed that little bit that ends up being in the end credits, too.
1: But it's another example of how sound is really drives the eye. You know, you can have a wide mm-hmm. shot. If, if in real life, if you're doing a shot like that, you'd have a cacophonous bunch of noise. But by just bringing certain elements up or down, you can you can actually control where the audience is looking through the sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, that always kind of shocks me because it seems counterintuitive. But because it's not like the speaker is moving, right? It's just the sound, and our brain says, "Look over there," because that's where the sound's coming from. It's
0: pretty interesting. Great. Well, let's uh, let's open up and, and take some questions, shall we? Sure. let um, yeah. have my chat box here. So, uh, would you say that a religious or philosophical tradition in particular inspired you in thinking about the great before and the afterlife?
1: You know, the curious thing is I've spoken with a friend who's Jewish, a pastor, and a couple people from Asia. And they all claim that the center (laughs) belief structure is endemic to them. And I kind of take that as a compliment because we were going, obviously, to trying to reach beyond any specific religion into more just the experience of what it is to live. Um, uh, A lot of folks have claimed it's pretty Buddhist, but... Um, I mean yeah. we
2: spoke with in, in development we spoke with so many people um, and I think the takeaway is how similar um, the belief systems are and also uh, we most of the discrepancies are in the afterlife and so we were very intentional to not go there so Joe's heading that way but then you know not many people <laughs> um, have discrepancies about the great before so that's why we really like spent our time in that world
1: I think a lot of religions. I mean, obviously, if you tell them, "Hey, everybody's the same," people get pissed off at you because they do have very different <laughs> ideas. But yes. I think what they're after is a sense of understanding of like, what is it? Life seems overwhelming at times. What is it that I'm? Uh, how am I supposed to live? You know, what's important? What are the important things? And um, and and that same reason why we, you know, setting the film entirely in the great before as soon as we talked about kind of why live and what's the purpose, you got to go to, to earth. And I think similarly, a lot of the religions end up being about not what am I preparing for in the future, but what am I doing right now? You know, how is this affecting my life and other people? Uh, so it's, it was, it was a cool, uh,
0: research trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of research trips, uh, here's a question, the look and feel of your New York sequences are just remarkable we talked a little bit about how you use that autumn light and you know uh, uh uh through the autumn trees and whatnot what research did you do for those sequences was there an extended field trip for the animators
2: <laughs> we we did go to new york um we were really lucky because we we what did we do we did a ton of jazz clubs mm-hmm. and then we did a lot of walking around queens um Kemp grew up in Brooklyn, which he'll say is the best borough, but uh, <laughs> all of our consultants that were, um, you know, working musicians in New York, they all, for some reason, lived in Queens. I think mostly just it was it's more affordable. Um, and so we picked the neighborhood there, just did a lot of research in those neighborhoods, went to a school um, and met with uh, Dr. Peter Archer, who was the middle school ba- uh, jazz band teacher, just just incredible people and I really think it's people that make up New York City. I mean yes, we got the details of the gum our production designer was obsessed with taking pictures <laughs> of gum on the sidewalk and yeah. and we wanted to like the the buildings and the trees and all of that but really it's like if you look at the people, we spend a lot of time making sure is there, there's a lot of diversity.
1: We we also looked at a lot of films set in New York, like especially from the 70s, you have like Annie Hall and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Three Days of the Condor and stuff, you know, films that were, I've, I don't remember the name of the film stock, but had anamorph- anamorphic lenses. So we tried sure. to capture and replicate a lot of that um, because I think it is unconsciously what a lot of us think of when you think of New York, you know. Mm-hmm. Plus it contrasted nicely with what was going on in
0: the great before. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a, here's a question, given that there aren't really child characters in the movie, was it a concern at any point on how to make the movie's mature themes palatable and relatable to kids?
1: I thought about that at the beginning, uh, and my, my, where I was putting all my chips was on the, the other souls, the unborn souls, because I knew they'd be fun and goofy and cute. Um, <laughs> but that was when the whole movie was set there. <laughs> so then as the movie evolved and their part got smaller, I became more kind of nervous I don't know, Dana. Did you worry about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always in the back of our. I mean, I have two younger children. We've all had children. Um, one thing we did on Inside Out that proved to be really helpful. So we we did the same thing on Soul. Is we had the entire crew um, bring in their own kids, and we did a kid screening. Um, so I think we had like 150 kids come in one day, and from aging from like two to you know 20. Um, And it's really helpful because it's usually the parents that say their kids aren't following or don't get it, and then you will literally have the kid be like, "No," and then like explain to you what's happening. (laughs) Um, So it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. The same thing happened at our audience preview. Like the kid, you know, parent would be like, "I think that this film's too mature," and the kid would, you know, their kid would be like, "What? I love it." (laughs) So, great. But yeah, we worry about it for sure.
0: So, uh, Pete, this is a question for you. So the the, the uh, writer says, sorry, this question isn't about the movie. But, Pete, you sound fantastic on Zoom. What mic are you using?
1: <laughs> that's just my, the dulcet tones of my, uh,
2: It's a you know. Dolby.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Free plug. Now, I have this. Uh, I think it was, I was talking to Ed Catmull, the old president of Pixar. He had these. It's a, a USB mic that you just plug in. So. Sounds good. I, I I have I have one as well. Yeah, it's wow. like that one.
0: Uh, uh, so another question: What has been the most difficult lesson you have had to learn to be authentic in your personal and professional storytelling life? We will we, we'll, we'll um, I, I'll, I'll just an easy one for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing
1: I know I was thinking about this over the weekend uh, when I was first directing you know i was the first uh uh, director at pixar other than john and john lassiter had, had was just at this you know the studio set such an he was such a collaborative guy so energetic had a lot of funny stories and he's sort of a larger than life kind of guy And as I struggled, a lot of times people would kind of pull me aside and say, you know what John would do in this situation is blah, blah. And I I kind of tried to mimic him for a while, and I realized that is a disaster, right? I think just like in storytelling, when someone tells you, I have a note and I think this character's hair should be blue or whatever it is, I think what's often helpful is to unpack that and go, well, why? What is it the root of, we call it the spirit of the note. Like, what is it? Why are they suggesting this? It's fixing this concrete problem. And I think uh, um, di- directing and style uh, kind of comes to that too. Like, what is it that works? It's not the surface level stuff. It's the underlying elements of what it is they're doing. And you really have to kind of think a little deeper about wh- um, when you work with someone that's really successful, what is it that they're doing? You know, because a lot of times you can get caught up in the, 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 the style of which they do it. But if you uh, are able to think more deeply about the idea that, you know, in this case, John was very uh, giving in uh, dailies, um, you know, a lot of times dailies are it's the director who speaks and everybody so shuts up, but he would solicit ideas from everybody. And that collaboration became a, a huge part of the way I work. Um, uh, and I think kind of coming from that. So I guess, The the short answer is you got to be authentic to who you are. You can't pretend to be somebody else. You got to figure out how you're going to put this across and only you are going to be able to do that in that specific way.
0: Dana, anything you want to add to that? Yeah,
2: I was, uh, it's a really good question. I wish I had an hour to think about it, Um, (laughs) but just like, I don't know. I think I started at Pixar when I was really young and I think I was, I never wanted to speak up and say the hard thing. So for, I think the first 10 years of my career, I probably was like hiding. And then I realized I'd often have something I'd want to say, but I wouldn't say it and someone else would say it. And then, so I just started to finally trust myself and say the thing that maybe no one wanted to hear, but needed to hear. And I think just like trusting your voice. And, um, yeah, I I don't know if that's making much sense, but, but you know. were also great.
1: Yeah. Dana was, was great at not saying it f- to promote herself, but for the film. Like you can really tell when someone is out to protect the work as opposed to like trumpet themselves and and you know, I think uh in all you spoke up about it was always in defense of that. You know, Dana was one of the great champions to make sure we had gender balance in the film, which is often a real blind spot. It's not like we intend to make all the movies about males, but it seems to happen. So we really needed pushing in that direction. Um, uh, Even the culture trust, as we were mentioning, you know, having this amazing uh, set of voices helping us make the film more accurate also came with a lot of extra like you just needed the time to digest all that. And often I would be pushing back going, I just need to tell the story first. And Dana was right about like, no, this is an important aspect of this story. So um, I guess my point was that you were a great champion of the film.
2: Well, thanks, Pete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so here's the question. It was very impressive how accurate the music was in terms of where the hands go and how the notes are being played, similar to the guitar playing in Cocoa um how did you animate that so accurately well we set up like cameras yeah exactly
2: (laughs) yeah we're i think we probably like horrified all the musicians we had because there was just cameras everywhere (laughs) um but we really just wanted the animators just wanted to capture all those little details and then we um the tool i believe that we use is midi is that right pete it's called midi um, and it's just a tool that like basically is capturing as John's on the piano. Cause I believe Coco used it for the guitar. Um, it's capturing the notes that he's actually playing because he's moving so fast so that they could look at mm. that information. Cause they really wanted it to be accurate in the animation as well.
1: Yeah. The animators, I guess the keyboard would light up the notes that he was playing on that frame. And so
0: they could. Oh, interesting. Wow. Finger to it. Now, obviously you designed this movie to come out theatrically and because of COVID, you had to pivot and release it on uh, the Disney Plus streaming platform. Um, do you, I mean, obviously, I think we're all looking forward to getting back into movie theaters, but I am curious, do you feel like um, this period is gonna change the the animation genre or or change how you're gonna make films moving forward?
1: Huh. Well, I'm not convinced that once COVID lifts people won't just rush back to theaters. I do think there are considerations that you make for uh the kind of film. So, you know, in making film for for on IMAX for a while we were I was like I can't just convert this and throw it up on a high, giant screen. I need to cut differently. I need to think mm-hmm. differently about the shots, you know. Um and similarly, there are things that you do for a small screen that probably wouldn't work on a regular uh, cinema screen. So, I don't know, I guess I'm saying, I don't think in the near future, until we're really told by the audience and circumstances that, you know what, theaters are dying or dead, and now we're doing everything for streaming. I think we're gonna continue to look at filmmaking and a communal experience of watching a movie together in the dark. I think that's that's what we're all here
0: for. <laughs> yeah, I miss it. <laughs> I think we all do. I think you know. Yeah. I, for most of it's been for most of us, it's been almost a year since we've had the opportunity to be in a movie theater, and uh, yeah. uh, I think we all want to get back as soon as possible. Okay, the very last question: Who came up with a joke about the New York Knicks losing again? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's all, Camp. Yeah, he said that he needed a way to explain why he was tortured his entire life as a Knicks fan. Um, so it's a great explanation.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think, that's a, I think that's a great one to go out on. So <laughs> yeah. Pete, Dr. Dana Murray, thank you so much. First of all, for making such an incredible, extraordinary film and for taking the time today to, to, to talk to us about it. It's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you. That was fun. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Yeah, appreciate it.
0: And thank you to uh, all of our friends at uh, Film Lincoln Center, the New York Film Festival, and the Artists Academy for giving us this platform to talk about the art and craft of film and to spend some time focusing on soul. Uh, I guess we're signing off now. This is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute. Thanks for joining us all.